We know that all children have areas where they'll find challenges, no matter whether they have a diagnosed disability or never have a diagnosed disability. As, as a parent, we, you know, we all know that there's always areas of challenges, but there are easy ways if we can motivate the children to get through those challenging areas. April is Autism Awareness Month. Autism Spectrum Disorder refers to a broad range of conditions characterized by challenges with social skills, repetitive behaviors, speech and nonverbal communication challenges, and difficulty forming relationships with others. Here today to help bring awareness to using a strength-based approach to tap into the full potential of those with autism, and truly with, you know, all children, is Dr. Lynn Kern-Cagle. Dr. Cagle is a clinical professor at Stanford University School of Medicine and co-founder of the Cagle Autism Center at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Her new book, Hidden Brilliance, offers a groundbreaking approach that encourages parents to identify their children's strengths and interests and use them as a tool for social communication, improved learning, and overall growth, while reminding us all to welcome and support diversity in our homes and in our communities. So whether your child has autism or not, these methods of fostering intrinsic motivation and looking past the behavior to try to identify our child's true desire and offering them more appropriate ways to get their needs met are strategies all parents will be able to utilize. Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Bren, a clinical psychologist and mom of two. In this podcast, I've taken all of my clinical experience, current research on brain science and child psychology, and the insights I've gained on my own parenting journey, and distilled everything down into easy to understand and actionable parenting insights, so you can tune out the noise and tune into your own authentic parenting voice with confidence and calm. This is Securely Attached. Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's show. We have Dr. Lynn Kern-Cagle here today, and I'm really excited. She's written this kind of amazing book, and we're going to get to talk to you all about it. So welcome, and thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Yeah. And so you, you've got done quite a bit in the world of autism. And I, you know, can you tell us a little bit about like how you got into this work, what you've been doing, this, this, um, the, Kegel Autism Center that you've that you founded and and you know how this work got started. Well, I did start a long time ago. I started in the seventies, and that was when autism was very rare. We there weren't very many children that were diagnosed with autism, so it was pretty rare. And now it's there's a lot of one in every forty four children are diagnosed with autism. So it's very different from back when I started when one in every 2,500 or so had autism. So it has changed a lot, and, but there are a lot more resources going into every aspect of autism from diagnostic all the way through treatment. So a lot of good things are coming out and there's a lot more funding going into it. And previously, I spent a lot of my career at the University of California in Santa Barbara, and we, my husband and I founded the Kegel Autism Center there. And now I'm up at Stanford and I work in the School of Medicine at Stanford. Amazing. And so you wrote this book, Hidden Brilliance, and it's not like a typical book that I've seen about 
autism. And I'm just so, I was super intrigued by it because it's super aligned with the way I look at kind of all things in childhood from this like strengths-based lens. And so can you talk a little bit about why you wrote this, this book? It probably was in the thinking stage for maybe a decade or more. And it, and it really hit me when my nephew was diagnosed with autism and there were people evaluating him and the specific instant was when he was upset and he threw a toy and it went into like 25 pieces and he looked shocked and he put together the toy so quickly that, I mean, it was something that I would have had to use the manual for and maybe even had tr- trouble with that. I could never have done it in the minute that he did it. And he was nonverbal at that time. And I thought, gosh, that's really interesting. But when we got his report back, the only thing the report said was that he threw the toy. So mm. I, it was kind of an aha moment where you, I started thinking back about even my training. We, I was trained always to look for what's wrong with the child. And I think there's a little bit more focus now to look at what's right with the child, but not as much as there should be. So what are their strengths? What are they doing well? What little glimpses do we see of things that will bring out the best in them? So we we wrote this book mostly just to get people thinking about the great, wonderful parts of autism and, and pretty much any, we know that all children have areas where they'll find challenges no matter whether they have a diagnosed disability or never have a diagnosed disability. As, as a parent, we, you know, we all know that there's always areas of challenges, but there are easy or easy ways if we can motivate the children to get through those challenging areas. And, and while it's helpful with kids without autism or any disability, it's critical for children with autism because they really lack that motivation because things are hard for them. And it's mm-hmm. if someone says hi to them, if they say, say hi back, it's going to get harder because someone will say, how old are you? And what's your name? And what's your teacher's name? And where do you go to school? It's like, that's the hardest thing for them. So we're trying to really focus on really incorporating these motivational components, which are good for any child to really help their learning and produce better outcomes. Right. It's sort of like child-centric versus diagnosis-centric. It is diagnosed, and that's exactly right. And it's also when thinking about what they need is not worrying so much about are they having this milestone and this milestone and this milestone, for example, with language. We don't want to worry if they're saying mama or dada or things that might be more social words and harder for them, but really saying what are they like and what's going to be a good stimulus for first words or language or anything that's really going to motivate them. And later we can worry about the mama and dada and things that are more social, but getting a good kickstart so that the kids really are motivated and come in running to the sessions and love the sessions rather than trying to avoid the sessions and learning slower or maybe not learning at all. Yeah. Oh, that's such an interesting point to think about it. Cause, cause like I'm, I'm, I, this makes me think of like a Reggio Emilia model for education, which is like, you know, I'm, I'm so in love with that style of education because it's child led. It's, you know, the interests of the child dictate the curriculum in the classroom. And it kind of, so in my head, I immediately jumped there because it kind of translates to the same idea as like when you're doing therapy with a child, you know, it's so hard. And I, and I, I so much, um, understanding and empathy for a parent who, you know, who has a child who has autism, who, you know, 
as a parent who doesn't perhaps wants just so desperately to have that child look at them and come to them and hug them and look for those social responses that we really value and cherish in our interactions. And to say, if I could only just get my child to do that, things would feel better. And perhaps that's true, but it's almost like focus, that might be the byproduct, but of really recognizing where is this child at right now? And instead of trying to get them to do the thing that we wish they could do, to do the thing that they're interested in as a way of building out that language and that social cognition and all the things that, you know, it's you got to get the in first, Exactly. That's so true. And we know from the literature with children without language, uh, children that are typical language learners, if you talk to them a lot, they develop their language. The more you talk to them, the faster their language will develop. So just talking to them is so important and expanding on their language. So if they're playing with a toy to talk to them. And if they say um, something like book to say, oh yes, it's a, it's a book about animals and just kind of expanding. But unfortunately with children with autism, it doesn't work that way. The parents have to be really vigilant and the treatment providers and teachers have to be really vigilant to try to see where their motivation is. Otherwise it just is going to go over their head and they're, it's going to be kind of not productive time. And it's, Uh, it's really a lot of effort for parents. My heart goes out to how much effort it is for them to really set up those learning opportunities because many children with autism, if the learning opportunities aren't set up, they're not going to learn. So for example, if they like to go on a drive in the car, instead of just jumping in the car and saying, oh yeah, I'm going to grab my keys and I'm going to grab my purse and then we can get in the car, setting up that opportunity where You say open to open the door or buckle to buckle the seatbelt or go because the the end result is something that's going to be naturally reinforcing for them. But it is setting up those opportunities and really thinking about motivation and and what's Mm. going to be so exciting to them that they're going to make this big effort to try to talk and to try to use more language and communicate, which is a big challenge for them. Yeah. it's So it makes me think of like set and setting versus content. Like- if we set up the mindset of interest, engagement, because we're talking about something they're motivated and, and enjoy, and the setting, like doing the learning in the car where they're really excited versus trying to force the content in a set and setting that doesn't activate their attention and their engagement, or maybe is overstimulating to them and they like shut down and pull back. That's really interesting. Yes, absolutely. That's just critical. And I think that's important for all kids. I do remember when I got my PhD after I had children and I remember coming home from my first statistics class in the same week. One of my daughters came home and said, oh, we learned mean, medium, mode. And I was like, oh, that's what I learned in grad school today. <laughs> and they did it with a bag of M&Ms. And they had them count the M&Ms and the colors and the and line them up. And each child in the class had to do mean, median, and mode. And they love that. And here they are learning statistics, which a lot of people shy away from. But they loved it. I mean, it's. I thought that's a brilliant way to teach it. I wish I had done that in my grad class. <laughs> right? Where were the M&Ms? Yes. And that just, that kind of teaching 
which has like a natural reinforcer in it and has motivating um, items used or activities used is great for all children, but it is, again, especially critical for children on the autism spectrum. And, and I will say that the one, one difference between children who are developing that don't have autism and children that have autism is they, in order to get that diagnosis, they have to have restricted and repetitive behaviors. So a lot of times it's individual. Every child's is different, but sometimes they'll be really interested in turning, let's say the light on and on and off, off and on and on and off. And it's not really something that you see kids without autism so interested in, or they might be interested in watching the ceiling fan go away. But we have learned through the research that if you use those as a stimulus, they really can motivate the child and they don't increase at other times. So some people say, oh, I'm so stressed about using turning the light on and off because he's always wanting it on and off. And I'm afraid that's going to be the only thing he does. And it's actually mm -hmm. kind of the opposite. If we can get in a good context where we start and just kind of cover up the switch and say on and have the child say on or off, then you can expand on that. And they're really learning appropriate social interaction and language within that context of that activity that's really rewarding for them. Yeah, that's really interesting. Because And I'm curious your take on like certain types of autism interventions, like applied behavioral analysis, where or other like very behavioral interventions that really look to modify a behavior, oftentimes these repetitive behaviors. And I'm just curious, like, how does that fit in or maybe shift with what you are kind of articulating? Well, that's a really good point that you bring up because years ago, there was a parental causation theory of autism. And as mm -hmm. if we mom need, moms need more guilt, right? <laughs> you know, we always feel, right. I don't know, as I as a mother felt guilty about everything. And most moms, I think, yeah. you, know, you always worry, are you doing everything right? But unfortunately, Many years ago, there was a theory that the mothers caused it, and most of the interventions separated the children and their mothers really? as they felt like the parents, but mostly mothers, were kind of feeding into the problem instead mm -hmm. of helping their children, which was so sad. But some of the early ABA intervention did show that it, separating the parents and the children was the exact worst thing you could do because they didn't generalize these newly learned behaviors, and actually that the parents... We need them to be an integral part of the intervention. It's not their fault. The personality tests, everything have shown that there's nothing the parents did to their children, you know, once they were born and they never wished they didn't have them or anything like that. They, it wasn't anything like that. It's something that, you know, they're born with. We don't know the cause, but it's something the children are born with. And I, and so the early ABA interventions were a big jump, but unfortunately they used a lot of punishment. And that's really unfortunate, but that was just kind of the process because people didn't understand that when children have inappropriate behaviors, it's not that they're being bad. It's that they don't have appropriate way to communicate. Like mm -hmm. any child, we always, with our kids, we always say, oh, use your words. When they start to tantrum or get upset, we try to replace that. And if their language is developing without a delay, they're usually pretty good at just getting to learn that they need to say their words, maybe, you know, in the second year of life early on. But children with autism who 
have language generally have some communication delays. It's really difficult for them to get that connection. And sometimes they use those earlier behaviors that work. So now we know the more important way to get long lasting change is to really get in there and um, figure out what the problem is and teach them a good replacement behavior. And um, so the reason we did a lot of our work in the late 70s and early 80s on motivation was because the ABA, it was effective, but the gains were slow and it required a lot of hours of intervention. And so we did a lot of work on motivation and how to motivate the children. That's where we sort of, um, we and some other people that at that time were researching around the country, some good stuff came out of Emory with incidental teaching. And back then we found that if we use their motivation, we didn't even have to worry about the inappropriate, disruptive, or interfering behaviors because they sort of dropped out by themselves. When the kids are having fun, they're more engaged and they learn faster. So that was really important um, that we did. And the other thing that we've really looked a lot at is where can we get some added gains? Like if we pick particular behaviors where we have some added gains. And that's where we started looking at these initiations. So teaching children to for, to initiate interactions, that kind of takes the pressure off parents of having to set up all these opportunities. Mm-hmm. We've done a lot on question asking, like having the children ask, what's that? Or where is it? And so on, all the different questions, what's happening? Because it seems like that really helps create independence. It gives them a way to initiate learning opportunities, and it's more back and forth. And sometimes a lot of our kids are developing these great requests. So when we start teaching first words, they'll request things. But then, and they may even get to sentences where they say, I want something or can I have something? But they don't do this question asking. So we, Talk about this in the book also, where we um, have laid out some procedures for teaching questions, which I think is good for all kids. I mean, I taught my kids pretty young to ask when they, what's that mean? What's that word mean? Or what does that mean? And ask a lot of questions. So I think it's that information seeking is good, but I think especially important for the kids with autism who may not develop that without special special, um, help in that area. Yeah. And it's interesting because I think if we do look at just the behaviors, just the restrictive, repetitive behaviors, or we focus on the meltdowns that happen in these moments of like big frustration, um, we can kind of, I kind of wonder if that's maybe like a bit of a red herring. I mean, like when I talk about parents of kids who don't have autism, I still say those are focusing on just the behaviors in isolation is a bit of a red herring. It's always more important, I think, to look under the hood. Why is that behavior happening? So for the sort of repetitive behaviors, maybe it's just because it's really stimulating and pleasurable. But also, I think for the explosive behaviors, it's like, well, is it because there is this frustration? And the frustration may be actually due to a lack of the communication skills to solve the problems, to ask what they need, to say, no, I don't like that, to be assertive. And so with, or to be be able to understand the sort of back and forth of a conversation. And so they get frustrated. And if we're able to actually focus on helping them meet those needs more effectively, or have access to the behaviors that they find self-soothing. Yes. We 
can actually, we don't need to focus so much on changing the behavior anymore because like you were saying, it kind of corrects itself. That's absolutely right. And I think the early ABA interventions is um, there was this belief that you had to get rid of all those other behaviors first. So we spent a lot of time just saying, hands down, look at me and Mm -hmm. getting rid of the behaviors first. And then we were like, realized, I mean, first of all, there we all have repetitive behaviors. Some of us tap our foot or play with our hair or tap our pencil or things like that that just don't interfere at all. And that's the same with kids with autism. And then there are other behaviors that do interfere with learning that we kind of want to reduce. But if we get this motivational teaching going on in there, we don't really have to target them at all. We don't have to do anything for them. If we get the kids, if we if they become interested in our teaching methods, capture their motivation, then we don't really have to worry about those other behaviors. They kind of drop out by themselves. And I think that um, we don't really know. We still to this day don't really know why the kids engage in the RRBs, the repetitive and restricted and repetitive behaviors are often called self-stimulatory behaviors. But there is kind of a thought that if they're not, that the organism needs sensory input. And if they're not getting it from the environment the way other people without autism would get it, they might create it for themselves just to kind of arouse their themselves and things like that. So it, in that, um, if that is true, by giving them fun activities that are competitive or competing with that repetitive behavior, we can have some good gains and it just kind of goes away because they're having so much fun. And then other ones, as you mentioned, may be self-soothing. They may not be that big of a deal. Maybe we need to teach the rest of the world, you know, okay, some people tap their foot. Some people might do other things, but don't worry about it so much. (laughs) Yeah. And like, I think that that gives, it's like when you focus on it and focus on it and focus on it, it, it also can amplify anxiety around it, I imagine, for a child. And so it can actually do the opposite of what we're trying to do, right? Like if yeah. a child is engaging in a, in, a, in a repetitive behavior as a way of soothing themselves, and then we are in focusing on that, amplifying their anxiety, they're going to need to soothe themselves more. Yeah. And I have, you know, people are different. Like I have a few adults that have come to me and said, you know, I want to date and I want to know what I might be doing that's you know, interfering with that. And sometimes they'll be having some repetitive behaviors and they want me to tell them and point that out. And some of them might be, you know, like I had a guy the other day that a brilliant grad student on the autism spectrum, and he would inadvertently pick his nose while during conversations and he didn't even realize he was doing it. So some of those things, you know, he was thrilled to have me just, you know, point out and he said, Oh, I didn't realize that I was doing that. You know, right. we all have an itch now and again. And so, and so but again, um, that's a good example of following his interests and motivations, right? Because he wants to gain these social relationships. He's motivated and interested in doing that. Your feedback for him to modify his behaviors is part of that. And he's like, he's able to integrate that in with like a regulated open position. Whereas if you're a three-year-old and you just want to turn the light switch on and off before you move out of a room and that's like just something you really want to keep doing. And everyone is like, you not allowing you to do that for whatever reason I'm picking, I mean, I'm picking that example, but like 
it, it becomes, it can become more amplified, the need, the urge to do it. Yeah. And I think that, you know, people, what you can do is like, if they're learning first words, you can do on. And then when they get to the two word stage, you can say light on and turn. And so you can expand that. So even maybe later on, they're, you know, doing a lot of conversation and then getting to, to do that. And you can also, there's also a lot of good research on transferring that to more appropriate, like maybe toys with lights or things like that. But I think, you know, you're, you're perfectly accurate. And I also think you mentioned about the meltdowns. I think too often, even when sometimes when people figure out the function of the meltdowns, like maybe they're trying to avoid a task, they don't first look, how can I make the teaching more fun? So there might be a way to teach the same task, but make it really fun for the child. And then second, if they're replacing, like trying to teach a replacement behavior, like I need a break, a lot of people don't really get the uh, understand that they have to really practice that a lot till it becomes really automatic for the child. So a lot of times they wait till the problem behavior occurs. I know, I know all of us parents do this a little bit, but um, where there's a problem behavior and you say, oh, remember, you're supposed to use your words and then they use the word, but then they've figured out that mm-hmm. first I have to show the problem behavior, then I use my word and then I get what I want. Whereas we want to take out that first nip that in the bud where they go straight to the replacement behavior, but only can we get that if we practice it a lot in between those more challenging times. So really just practicing like setting up situations where you can say, um, okay, tell me if you need a break, if that's why they're needing, if that's why they're showing the interfering behaviors, or let me know if it gets too hard. And is it too hard before they get really frustrated? So that practice is something that's really important with children with autism to make sure, and probably adults too, but make sure that they're really getting a lot of practice so that they, that's their go-to. If their go-to isn't the just, you know, the interfering behavior, and then they get that prompt to, um, to, to show an appropriate behavior or a request, verbal request or whatever, or sign or whatever it might be. Yeah. And it's interesting because I think a lot of this also is true for kids, all kids, right? They do, like I'm thinking of my kids definitely do a lot of things that like aren't, uh, aren't great behaviors. And I have to figure out how to not in the moment, try to teach them not to do it, but to sort of set them up for more success in the next moment and try to sort of, you know, I talk a little bit about ABCs, antecedent behavior consequence, and like trying to help a kid understand like, well, what happened before you did this thing? And then what happened after? And if we want to change what happened after, could we look at what happened before so we could work, you know, giving kids more insight into why they might engage in a behavior and then looking at that piece as as like where we modify versus just focusing on shifting the behavior like an example for, and I imagine this would work with autism as well, but imagine for like an example for, you know, any child might be when you get frustrated, you hit. Okay. Well, frustration usually leads to hitting if you have no impulse control and most little kids struggle with that. So instead of trying to teach them to do something else when they're frustrated, first you can get there, but first we need to figure out how do we notice when we're frustrated? right? Because the goal is not actually don't hit. The goal is notice you want to hit 
and stop. (laughs) And that's a far more complex task. And it requires mindful awareness of the, I'm mad or I'm frustrated and I want to hit. And then I can practice putting in a replacement behavior. But the very first step is that mindful piece of notice that I'm frustrated or maybe notice that I have the urge to hit. And I imagine this process that you just described that you're using in helping children with autism kind of learn these alternative behaviors. I mean, that's a good model for learning a behavior period. You're absolutely right. And I've worked with so many grad students and they come in and they'll to my office and say, oh, he hit me or he he hit himself or he bit himself or he had a meltdown. I'm like, okay, so first thing, whenever a child has one of those behaviors is when they're really agitated or irritated, it's really hard to work on something in that moment. So the important thing is not that you stress about it. I say, take a breath. It's okay. We all have those kind of behaviors. The important thing is what is the plan in the future? So if we know the child is hitting because someone took the toy, we might want to teach them to say mine, but we Mm -hmm. need to practice that again a lot. Practice, practice, practice. So we might even want to set up situations that say, okay, I'm going to take the toy. Can you say mine and give it right back and make sure that when you're doing it in natural environments that the other children give it back. So they're rewarded for that. Or we had another, we had a little guy that he, um, one of the things that's important that I should preface my story with is that aggressive behaviors work. Kids wouldn't Mm -hmm. keep using them if they didn't work. If you hit the kid when they're taking away your toy, they probably won't come back and try to take your toy away again. So the only reason that the kids keep doing these behaviors which are anything, meltdown, aggressive, whatever behaviors is because they do work for them. So the important thing is really to set up a situation where they practice a better way to express themselves. So my story, we had a little guy that liked to throw the basketball, but whenever somebody walked in front of him, he'd take the ball and throw it right at the child. And, you know, most of them would end up in the nurse's office because getting hit in the head with a basketball, that can be pretty painful. And Mm -hmm. even if it didn't cause any damage, they'd still go to the nurse's office because they were pretty upset. So mm-hmm. we, what we had to do is when he started playing base, basketball, we had people walk in front. We started with adults and then some kids and we held the ball and we had them say, excuse me, excuse me. And they get away really quickly if they say, excuse me, but we had to really practice that a lot. So in the moment when he was throwing the ball at the kids, we, we, didn't work on it right then because he was annoyed that they were there. And but in the future, we set up a situation where every single day we practice that. And after a few days, he realized that actually it's a lot easier to say, excuse me, because you don't have to go run after the ball afterwards. And it has the same outcome. So yeah. you can see how that works with just about any behavior for any child, just trying to figure out what they're trying to communicate. And, you know, a lot of a lot of people think that kids on the autism spectrum are not social. But a lot of them really want to have friends. And when we talk to the studies that interview verbal adults and verbal adolescents and verbal children even, they say they want to have friends and they want to have relationships and things like that. So, And I noticed that a lot of times preschoolers with autism, they will maybe show some aggression because they, in their repertoire, they don't have a lot of 
skills to engage socially. So just teaching them some good ways to play, take turns with toys, give other kids toys, say my turn, your turn, and things like that really early on are really helpful to really improve that social, but also replace that behavior that might be trying to get a peer's attention by using pushing or some other behavior that works, but is not appropriate. Right. It's so funny because that basketball, I was just the other night, I was, my daughter, she's three. She, you know, she's a typical three-year-old kid who gets frustrated sometimes and doesn't always have the language to ask for what she needs. And my son was, he had this basketball that he had just gotten. He was really excited about it and she grabbed it and ran away. And he was really upset, right? And I don't know how I had the wherewithal in this moment because, you know, I definitely could have very easily just been like yelled at her and, you know, like he was using that, give it back. But instead I said to her, are you trying to get him to play with you? And she nodded. And I said, you can hand him the ball and say, want to play catch? And thank goodness that my son was like not so mad at her for taking the ball away that he was like very much like, sure, we can play catch. And she said, play, want to play catch? And he said, yeah. And then they played catch for a couple minutes and then they went off to do something else. But it just made me realize I was like, there's so many times when our kids do something that gets us scared or frustrated or, or like, you know, in some way hits our threat detector and we want to shut it down or teach not to do that instead of trying to understand why they might be doing something and teach them what to do instead. And it, you know, it could have not landed. (laughs) She could have just been like, screw you, I'm running with this ball. But just being willing to kind of sit there and be like, is there an unmet wish or need that they maybe be equipped to communicate if you gave them a little bit of a, of a, of a, of a support of a, of a scaffold of a, of a little bit of a, of an assist, and then they can run with it. And I think obviously with kids with autism, it's, it's a little bit more of an, you know, we have to repeat it, you know, 10 times more or a hundred times more than we might with a neurotypical child. But it does. It's the same mechanism. It's just how many times do we need to repeat it for the learning to get sort of internalized? I think that's a brilliant example because we know from studies of parents who have typical language learners that if they use the style where they're more punitive and just when there's a problem say, oh, don't do that and oh, get away from there or this and that versus the example you gave where they explain everything and try to teach The kids that have the parents that try to teach end up doing much better in the long run. Language rise and they just do much better. So I think you're absolutely right of taking all those opportunities, which happen across the board, no matter if a child has a disability or not, taking those opportunities to really teach and taking those moments to teach. And like you said, trying to figure out if there's a function and if we can really create a nice environment from that function that could have gone south, but mm-hmm. if we could have really used that to have a teaching moment. And, you know, that's a great skill that she's going to learn is to be able to play and do that and how to play and how to ask, how to enter play and how to ask kids to play. Those are really important skills. So I think that's a great example. 
Yeah. And I think that the reason why that one stuck out, stuck out to me as, as significant for me, like to remember, like I was like, I got to log this in my own parent toolbox is that I think a lot of times we think if a kid is doing something aggressive, they're mad. And we forget that sometimes when a kid is aggressive, they're actually seeking out connection. They just are doing it with really kind of really sort of shoddy problem solving skills. Um, Exactly. And I think it's important to remember that a lot of times we do the wrong thing. Like, for example, schools, as kids get older, they'll suspend the kids if they have a problem behavior. And I have kids where they'll get disruptive in school because they don't like the assignment and they send them home and their kids are like, yes, got out of that Mm -hmm. one. Or they'll send them to another room instead of really thinking about, you know, what, what's, what can I do to support the child so it won't happen again? So time out, things like that, that maybe aren't really that helpful for the children. They're not going to learn that really think, thinking of things like you mentioned, where you can really use it as a teaching moment. Right. And in order to teach, you need to know what the function of the behavior is. You have to be curious about it. And sometimes that takes a little bit of trial and error, but it's very, you have to be intentional. You can't really be reactive. Exactly. And I mean, there are some situations like my nephew, when he was in preschool, he used to hoard the trains. He loved the trains and the train tracks. And when the other kids came around, he would scream at them and they would run away. And consequently, after just probably about a week, he had his own little private that he got all the trains and he no one else would come near. So we really taught him how to take turns and invite kids into play when he wanted to play and not to that he that they weren't his. They were the school's toys. He had to take turns because other kids like to play with them. But a lot of times I think children think that if a toy is taken away, they'll never get it back. So when we teach turn taking, we start with just taking away my turn and giving it right back really quickly. And then this, then doing it over and over so the kids realize, I'm going to get it back. It's just going to be a few little short period of time that I don't have it. And then they gradually add on to that so they can, what we call tolerate a delay, they can, they understand that, okay, I'm going to get it, but it might not be right this second. So that my turn really helps. And um, that helped with my nephew. He also actually had to open every single door. If he didn't get to open a door, he would have a major meltdown screaming. And you can imagine if, you know, his parents inadvertently opened the preschool door, he'd come into the preschool, like screaming for 20 minutes, you know, and they, they were like, what's wrong? <laughs> so we did the, my turn, your turn with that. And the first time, you know, he didn't like it when it wasn't his turn, but Pretty soon he got to realize that every other time was his turn. He just couldn't open every door. And then later on, as he grew up, he didn't, it didn't become an issue. But I think, um, you know, some of those things you can deal with. Sometimes there isn't seeming like you can't figure out the function. Like, I don't know why he had to open every door and would have a meltdown if he didn't get to. But that was really interfering with them being able to go a lot of places or if they if, you know, if anybody else inadvertently opened a door like a stranger, he'd have a meltdown. So some of those things you can deal with with just teaching them things like, you know, turn and your turn. But as often as possible, if there is a function, it's critical to address the function. Otherwise, the behavior will never go away because right. they don't have a way to appropriately communicate. Right. And it's I think it's you bring up a good point that like one, even neurotypical kids, you can't always figure out what the function of the behavior is because you can't read their minds and their logic is a little bit primitive. So it sometimes doesn't make any rational sense. 
But I would imagine that's even more pronounced sometimes in autism where like the reason behind it is so deeply embedded in some internal system that like we don't have insight into and they might not be able to show or articulate. So it's probably in a lot of cases a little bit more like if you can get there, fantastic. If not, assume there's a reason and at least just try to validate that there's probably a reason and move towards, you know, teaching the replacement or the alternative way to get their need met. Exactly. And I think if the kids have some communication delays, it makes it even more challenging. And a lot of the early intervention programs don't put as much emphasis on verbal communication as they should. And so the kids maybe continue with that delay for a longer period of time than necessary. So I think that's really important to start, you know, early getting that communication going and getting, you know, even even simple little verbalizations for them to indicate their needs so they don't have to fall back on that earlier behavior that all babies use when they're when they're not perfect, which is crying and other, you know, that kind of communication. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm curious, like if parents are listening to this and I know we've been sort of talking about like the this, this spectrum of things and also recognizing that some, like a lot of these strategies work for kids who aren't even on the spectrum, but also parents are like, I guess I have two questions. One is if parents are listening to this, like, hmm, maybe is my kid, like, I'm not sure how to know. And there's always been this sort of question, but we haven't really assessed. Like one, what do you recommend to parents who want to understand their children's behaviors better and understand if they're maybe perhaps dealing with or want to rule out an autism diagnosis? And then my second question is for parents who do have children on the spectrum you know, a lot of what you're describing is a little bit different from like a lot of the mainstream ways of treating autism historically. And I imagine, you know, parents who are listening to this might be like, whoa, this is, no one told me about this. And I have, this is the first time hearing about this and these different ways of thinking about it. What, what do you recommend are like steps parents can take to find out what their options are as far as like supports and like, philosophies and resources that are more aligned with this kind of a strengths-based and sort of child-centered approach? Well, we know that early intervention is really helpful for the children. And we do know that parent education is important. So if, if a provider is saying, oh, you shouldn't sit in the session or we don't need you here, just drop them off or, you know, go in a different room, there's a problem there. Mm. We also... I would say it's a big red flag if your provider comes to the house or you're bringing your child to school and they're crying. So sometimes parents will say, oh, they look out the window and see the provider's car coming up and they're, they're start crying. For the most part, that usually means that they're using some outdated procedures that aren't really considering the children's motivation. So I would say it's a, it's a, it's not a really hard tweak to be able to really consider the kid's motivation. There are specific steps that you can, that we discuss in the book that you can make sure that the, we have a fidelity of implementation where we look and say, are they using child choice? Are they varying the task? Is it a natural reinforcer? Are they rewarding attempts? So there's a lot of different variables that you can objectively look at and see if the kid's getting a good program. And if not, they'll usually have some avoidance behavior or escape behavior. So that's, important. And I think, you know, sometimes with the training, sometimes you get the people that are least um, 
have the least amount of formal education in the specific areas that spend the most time with the kids. So mm-hmm. some of the in-home programs, they have less formal education. Um, the people that are spending the hours and hours and hours with the children and same thing with school. Sometimes it's a paraprofessional or an aide that might not really have any formal training in the area. So that's important and, you know, to make sure they get the training and also to make sure the parents get some training too, so that they know to be able to recognize this and be able to say, I've had, I've had some parents that just kind of help their provider really show them the parents showed them what really works with my kid. You know your child better than anyone else and what works and what doesn't work. And it's it should be more of a team effort than, than um, it needs to be a team effort for everyone to. And I've had a lot of school programs where maybe they aren't prompting the behaviors they need to, or maybe they're, I've had programs where I see the paraprofessional sitting in between the child with autism and the peers at lunchtime. So they're really interfering with socialization. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of um, ways that we can, that if you, if the person that's spending a lot of hours gets proper and enough training, that's important. And, and I think also it is sometimes there's some package programs that just use like standard procedures for training and don't individualize it. So they're trained, but they're not trained in how to individualize it for each child's unique needs. So that's another thing that's really important in the training programs is that they really understand the child's unique needs. And and for paraprofessionals, I have some, my parents give the paraprofessionals little cheat sheets and just say, my child responds well to this and that and this and that and doesn't respond to X, Y, and Z, because they're not always going to read the child's goals and not even sometimes not even know. So sometimes just a little bit of cheat sheet, a little cheat sheet that's short and simple and tells you, you know, prompt this or prompt that can be immensely helpful for getting the child to have more opportunities and more learning in school or even in the in-home programs. Yeah, no, that makes so much sense. And like, I'm curious too, like if a parent is like, trying to articulate to a school or to an early intervention program that they're working with what their needs are, or they want to learn more about different approaches. Like what are some of the sort of keywords you would, you would suggest a parent look for, or, um, like some of the pedagogies or, or, or treatment, you know, philosophies that you would say are aligned with this model? So some of the, we developed pivotal response treatment, which has outlined, this was developed in the eighties and is still pretty, um, this is pretty consistent in the recommendations for the teaching procedures. And other ones have come up that use a lot of those same procedures that we developed, that we published about in the eighties and started researching in the late seventies. So there are specific things that are useful that are, can be objectively measured. And I would say too, that most teachers are pretty good. Like I've worked with so many teachers and teachers don't want to have children disliking their class. They want to work to have the children engaged and liking the curriculum and not having interfering behaviors. And they're really good about, you know, if point, if you point out, like I had a child that, um, was doing terrible in literacy and getting kicked kicked out of the class a lot because 
the the behaviors were interfering and disrupting the class. And what we did is instead of having a topic that he wrote about that the teacher chose, we just tweaked it a little bit. So he really liked computers. So he just start he had to write an essay on computers. And then he got to play with the computer after. And that changed everything. He would sit in class and write, 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 and produce these really nice essays. And this can be done with anything, any subject. And you can see just tweaking it a little. We had another kindergartner that she, they were doing penmanship. And they, the teacher was having them do the same letter over and over again. And she would have so much interfering behavior. She wasn't learning how to write. And mm -hmm. so we just tweaked it a little bit and had her write whole words instead of independent letters of her favorite items. And then she could play with it for a minute. Then she could write another word. So just tweaking the curriculum, they still have the same goal. They're still learning legible writing or how to write an essay or whatever the same goal is, but just tweaking it so their interests are, are incorporated. Yeah. And I love that so much because what's inherent in that is a basic trust that the child has within them this capacity, it's such a non-deficit viewpoint. Like it's not like they don't have this, they can't do this. It's, well, they can't do it this way, but we know they've got it in them somewhere. And it might not look the same as anybody else's skill set, but it's there. How do we tap into it? And I think that that is at its core, like kind of what makes your book, right? Like it's saying it's hidden brilliance. It is there. Yes. We have to figure out how to see it and how to draw it out in a way that is accessible to that individual child, which I think is beautiful. Absolutely. And then you're going to see a lot fewer meltdowns, a lot fewer interfering behaviors, and a lot faster learning and more responsiveness, which makes a big difference in learning. Right. And you can apply that to absolutely any human being in the world if you think about it. Right. Like, I think we all want to be seen for our potential and have someone say, if it's not here now, there must be some way to get it. And I'll just keep trying to understand and trying to iterate and trying to see you and trying to meet you where you're at. Like, whew, that would feel real nice for everybody, I think. Exactly. Yeah. I think that is relevant for all kids. I think, you know, one of the important things is that. These, there's a lot of research going on with autism, but these a lot of these principles can be applied to all children. And I think, as you mentioned earlier, there's kind of a continuum of the autism spectrum. There's kids that have developed very, very good language, but just don't use it socially, all the way to kids who have a lot of trouble and are very late learning their first words and don't maybe a small percentage, maybe five or 10% that even with the best procedures, never learn verbal communication. So there's a whole range and there's a whole range of the interfering behaviors. Some of them are so intense that it's really um, upsetting to the individual to take them away from that, where others are just not a big deal. They might just do some behavior that doesn't really interfere with their learning. So there's such a big continuum. And we kind of, you know, since we all have some characteristics of autism, especially all of us up here in Silicon Valley, I'm sure <laughs> that we all need to, you know, really just, um, you know, think about which, which ones are really interfering with behavior and need to be dealt with and learning, interfering enough that in, interfering with socialization and learning and other areas of our life that maybe need, really need addressing. And, and that's the same thing with parents. I know it's, it's, um, 
one of the things that concerns me is a lot of times when a child is diagnosed with autism, the parents feel more and more isolated. They feel Mm -hmm. like they can't go to the park because their child might have a meltdown or they can't go to the family party because, you know, grandma or auntie or somebody has said, oh, no, this, you know, he's interfering with our dinner or whatever. Or they feel like maybe they can't go to mommy and me groups or daddy and me groups or whatever the groups Mm -hmm. are because their child might not behave like the other children. And I think one of the things that we as professionals and maybe as a society, we have failed parents of children with disabilities is not coming together as a team and really supporting them and saying, we know you need to get out there. We want, we don't want you to feel more alone. We want you to feel more supported because this is when, where you need it and what, and all the way through, you know, have them on play dates, have them learn. How can I support them? What can I do? So I think as a society, we have failed our parents of children with disabilities of not really coming together and really saying, how do we keep them in the mainstream environment? I mean, we want them to get jobs as adults. How do we keep them in the mainstream environment as much as possible so they can have these more positive outcomes where they can be have employment and have friends and have leisure activities later on. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. And I think if parents are feeling, are feeling isolated, are there like, what would you recommend they try now? You know, I imagine things have shifted a little bit and it's also probably hard. It's probably hard as a parent of a child with um, autism or another disability to feel like, okay, I'd love to do all those things, but how, where do I start? Yeah, and I think um, some. T- I think what's really important as professionals, sometimes, as I mentioned with my example of sending kids home from school if they have a problem behavior, sending you know suspending them. Um, I think what we need to do is turn this around. And if there's a challenging behavior, like if the parent says, "I have trouble taking them to the park," because they may push or they may not play or they may. What for whatever reason, maybe they cover their ears when an ambulance goes by or have a meltdown. I think the professionals need to give not one, but three. Okay, we're going to do this, this, and this, because we know that multi-component programs are more effective than just saying we're going to try one thing. We need to really figure out a really good comprehensive program to deal with that. And I think professionals, schools, you know, tend to take kids out of the classroom there's a pro- when there's a problem or maybe um, send them home. And sometimes the in-home programs tend to just work in home and not go to situations like maybe they don't do well in the grocery store, but the parents have to shop. So maybe going to the store and buying one thing they really like for a few times and mm-hmm. then maybe adding one thing they don't like and then the thing they like and gradually working up. So we need yeah. these really good comprehensive programs that are in the natural environment. So the parents, they report that they're feeling really isolated and their activities shrink and their friend group shrinks. That should be the opposite. We, it right. should be expanding and, and professionals, we as professionals should be really helping the parents to give them a hold and we should pr- be providing support in these natural environments with a whole tool chest of techniques that can be used and will be helpful. Yeah, that's so valuable. If people want to learn more about like, okay, they're like, oh, I need that. <laughs> and they want to work with you or they want to learn more about the kinds of work you do or they want to read your book, where can they find you? How can they get in touch? So we do have a couple of websites for our new book. We have hidden-brilliance.org 
And for PRT, a website that has training and different materials on the motivational components, we have a website that is Autism PRT, which stands for Pivotal Response Treatment. So AutismPRTHelp.com. That's great. And it sounds like this is a place where people can go to like access all kinds of resources and your book just sounds absolutely amazing. So I'm really glad that you shared with us all these amazing, you know, pieces of wisdom and new ways of thinking about autism and, and just thank you so much for coming on and being here today. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It was great talking to you. Dr. Kogel and I were talking a lot in this episode about the lack of support that parents of children with disabilities receive, and this can be a major factor leading to burnout. If you are feeling overwhelmed, exhausted, and at the end of your rope, there are things you can do to start filling your own tank, but knowing where to begin can be daunting sometimes. That's why I created a simple weekly calendar to help you be intentional about addressing your cognitive, social, and emotional needs. Plus, I've created a kid version to help you teach your child how they can help themselves to relax and refuel in ways that actually benefit their development and mental health. If you want a copy of my weekly Banish Burnout and Banish Burnout Kid Edition calendar, all you have to do is rate and review this podcast. Send me a screenshot of your review to info at drsarahbrand.com and I will send the calendars straight to your inbox. That's info at drsarahbrand.com. I can't wait to read your reviews. And don't be a stranger.